0: Hey friends, this is a special bonus edition episode of the London Lyceum, so we think you're going to enjoy it. It's all the typical content you typically get, but it's just going to be an extra episode this week, so enjoy. On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Gavin Ortland about his new book, Why God Makes Sense. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is the overall thesis of the book, why write this book, and why did you choose to focus on Christianity and naturalism? And then we cover all sorts of topics related to the substance of the book, why think Christianity makes sense of meaning, of evil, why is it a better ground of hope, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. I mean, we're more than a podcast now, but we're a o- complete online center and we're doing all sorts of new things all the time. But we really always care about thinking. And we've tried to capture what we mean by that with a couple of intellectual virtues, such as charity. Curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So, this isn't everything we hope to do, and we're not always perfect at this. So, we fail all the time, but we do want to consciously, self-consciously tell, look ourselves in the face and say, "This is what we should be. This is what we should be seeking after as Christians." We look at the meekness of wisdom that we find in James three, uh, the wisdom that's from above, and we say that is what we're after. We're after serious thinking, and. When we talk, you know, we talk about charity and curiosity quite a bit, but we also want to emphasize the critical thinking aspect too. I mean, that was really the, the engine that began the podcast at the very beginning was just this desire to have serious thinking, uh, to not avoid careful, nuanced, in-depth, difficult uh, thinking. We think that matters, and we don't think we should shy away from that. We shouldn't shy away from the top shelf uh, material that requires a lot of intellectual apparatus and background. We think that's important. So, all of that in mind, I'm excited to introduce you all again to Dr. Gavin Ortland. Uh, many of you know who he is. You know his, their, his work, and rightly so. So he's got all sorts of cool stuff. Podcasts, uh, I guess. I mean, it started as a YouTube, but he does it, it goes to podcast as well. I think that's called Truth Unites, and he's written several uh, excellent books. Today, we're going to be talking about his book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. So at the time of recording this, this book just released recently, and I think it is a really special and unique book. So there's a lot of people who I think are interested in sort of the apologetic side, and the way that Dr. Orland presents it in this, in this book is really unique and I think really helpful. So I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, I think Dr. Ortland is one of the models, uh, a pastor, a theologian, um, a public thinker, a public intellectual, a serious theologian, just period. So I, I love uh, every chance we get to promote him, and I'm looking forward to this. So Dr. Ortland, before we jump in, just remind our listeners, if they, if they don't know who you are, what do you do, and then what got you really interested in writing this book? So you've written one on Anselm, you've written one uh, on theological retrieval and some other topics. What 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 made you think about this topic in particular? Yeah,
1: yeah thanks guys for having me. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, I'm a pastor in Ojai, California, uh, and I, let's see, I have four kids and a fifth on the way. I run a YouTube channel called Truth Unites, and I do some writing in the realms of theology and apologetics. Um, This book, I got interested in apologetics for a variety of reasons. One is I just love philosophy, and I've always found that kind of my natural interest. Uh, But most of my academic work has been in theology, but I've always felt like theologians can really benefit from engaging philosophy more. I was a philosophy major in college, and I really love philosophy. I just find it interesting um also i've been through two seasons of angst in my own faith working through doubts and questions and they weren't major crises but they were more just these ser- seasons of kind of you know i know what that feels like to have to work through these questions and and question things and um so i have a sympathy for people who are going through that and then the other thing is i've had a lot of friends who have deconstructed their faith there's a big deconstruction movement right now i have a real passion to try to help them so all of that led me into studying and working on this and it became this absorbing passion i if it's not weird to say i love my book <laughs> i don't hope that's not weird to say i just you know in just in the sense of i i poured my heart into it and i i believe in the ideas in it so all of that is kind of how I got into this.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I read this uh, a few months ago, and I could tell um, just how much of your heart you really did put in it. You actually even say, you know, early on in the book on page 13 that uh, that the kind of apologetics you're doing has been to me like a life raft in stormy seas. And I just thought that, you know— said a lot about um, the reason that you wrote the book. But so uh, the the name of the book, just to recap real quick, is uh, Why God Makes Sense in a World That does It. And the subtitle is The Beauty of Christian Theism. Uh, and I think that's an interesting subtitle, because when we think about apologetics, sometimes it's, uh, you know, we think about maybe um, deductive arguments and reasoning, you know, that, you know, I'm going to um, tell you why your view is wrong, and here's a syllogism. Like, we open this book, you're not going to get syllogisms about why this view is wrong and this view is right. You're using a different, uh, a different method here, more storytelling. So maybe tell us a little bit why you about why you chose that path, why you chose the the narrative framework um, approach for this book.
1: It seems to me that only in the modern era have apologetics and theology been kind of split up a bit. And that, so you've got in really theology and philosophy being split up. That's kind of a modern Western thing. Throughout most of Christian history, theologians have done apologetics, and they've seen that as a part of the task of theology. It's a part, something the church should be doing, something theologians should be doing. It, it, so, um, and uh, I, I really believe in that, and I think one aspect of approaching apologetics from a theological angle, not just as a philosopher. But, but you know and I'm not saying philosophy is bad. I'm saying doing philosophy as well as a theologian, not not splitting them up is that um, the is this idea of linking together the transcendentals, uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so a historic classical Christian way of, of commending the gospel is to show that it is true, also that it is good and beautiful. And that historic instinct in the Christian tradition, Going back to the church fathers, for example, I just think is so relevant right now. So many amidst the deconstruction. I think, uh, and I chronicle in the early parts of the introduction of the book, just all these different reasons why this is the case. But just to summarize it here, I just think the need of the hour right now isn't just strong arguments. I think the need of the hour right now is a whole, a holistic appeal showing the enchanting beauty of the gospel. And I just think for a variety of reasons, the cultural outrage and polarization, the disenchantment and depression and despair that's out there, so many other reasons, uh, that holistic appeal is particularly needed right now.
2: You you lean on Pascal and his uh, threefold order of apologetics, and you talk about that um, early on in the book. Can you explain for us what that is?
1: Yes, the single greatest influence on the book is Pascal. I read through Peter Kreef's edition of his Pensee or Thoughts before reading the book, and that was the greatest influence. I, I love Pascal. One of his, and I think I actually saw this in Tim Keller first, but at one point in his famous thoughts, he says, uh, "Because people despise religion and are afraid it might be true, you have the way you need to go is first to show that it's re- reasonable." second to show that it's uh desirable and then only third to show that it's true and in, there's a kind of psychological wisdom in that he's saying you can't just start by hammering away with reasons and truth because people have their defenses up you have to start by showing that it's it's not a thing to be held in contempt that's the first step. And that's what books like Tim Keller's Making Sense of God and some of Rebe- Rebecca McLaughlin's works are trying to do, trying to meet those front level objections that make people not even open to the conversation, you know? Um, and then you have to show that it's desirable. Uh, you have to show that this is good news. And I don't think that that's compromise or at least that it necessarily will result in compromise. Um, and I think that's actually just a part of how we can make our case is to show You know, as I say in the book, if Jesus rose from the dead, the way that should hit us is like when you wake up on morning, on Christmas morning, uh, and as a little boy and realize it's Christmas. Uh, It's really good news. It's really, 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 really happy. And uh, when you see how happy it is compared to a naturalistic universe, which is utterly without hope and meaning and transcendence, um, I think that's really helpful for people to see that and to feel that.
2: Yeah, we we, we uh, had an interview with uh, Nancy Piercy a couple years ago and she made a comment during that interview about the you know how we have a great story to tell and we you know we need to we need to tell the story so it doesn't always have to be well you know you're right on this issue or you're wrong on this issue we need to you know tell it like a story because you know I mean that's kind of how God has given it to us in scripture so it makes uh perfect sense that we would pitch it uh in that way as well so you split the book up into four parts, uh, the cause of the world, the meaning of the world, the conflict of the world, and the hope of the world. Obviously, we're not going to be able to go through all of that, and I want to commend the book to all the listeners, um, so please do pick it up and read it. But I thought we could uh, park the car here a little bit on the cause of the world. Um, on page 21 of the book, you're you're quoting, and if I say his name wrong, forgive me, Robert Jastrow, but I, I just laughed when I read this quote. You say... Uh, you say for the what well, he says. this, you're quoting him. Uh, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Um, so I, I chuckled when I read that. Why do you think that Christianity makes the most sense of um, the, the actual world even existing? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and I'll just explain that those chapter titles, too, for people watching or listening. They might find it interesting. So um, w- what I'm trying to do here with uh, the four chapters of the book is repackage four classical theistic proofs in a narrative frame. So I'm trying to use classical arguments for the existence of God as a way to tell a story so you know the first one is about the cause of the world that's the cosmological argument that's what we'll talk about here the second one is about the meaning of the world that's the teleological argument third the conflict of the world that's the moral argument and finally the hope of the world that's jesus the christological argument so uh, that that gives readers a sense of the overall arching kind of uh arc of the book so yeah the, this first chapter is all about just you know basically 20th century cosmology uh, the discovery of the expansion of the universe, big bang. And I'm basically arguing for two things that it makes a lot more sense to have a cause for the universe than not. And number two, uh, it's a lot, it's a lot more interesting and elegant to suppose that there's a cause than not. And then we're probing that word cause. What does that mean? What does that look like when we're trying to show how something, um, something other than strictly physical reality just makes more sense. Because even if you've got one universe per- causing another, you just get back into a, a regress. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, th- this Robert Jastrow is himself an agnostic physicist, but a really smart and interesting figure. And he's one of many who are basically making this appeal that, um, you know, they're not a believer in God, but they're kind of saying, you know, it kind of freaked a lot of scientists out. Uh, as you're going through the 20th century and you're discovering it kind of looks like it began because the whole thing with the big bang is, and there's different models too. There's non-standard models to it. What most people think is it really is a beginning from nothing. So it's not just that like, you know, you've got empty space and then light or energy or some, or matter explodes within empty space. It's that space itself seems to have come into being. And if you really try to wrap your mind around that, it's pretty mind-boggling. And I spent a lot of time in this chapter with Lawrence Krauss just trying to show when people try to say the universe can come into being from nothing, they don't really mean nothing. Lawrence Krauss has all these different definitions of the word nothing, like a state of minimal energy. Well, that's not nothing. You know, but uh, so anyway, I, I just think this is one area that gives us at least a very basic and profound testimony that kind of the way I cast this chapter is just opening the door a bit, you know, just showing that naturalism is is pretty tough on its own. It, it, it doesn't have a ton of explanatory power for what the heck our world is doing here.
2: Yeah. This the second chapter of the book uh, is titled "The Meaning of the World: Why Things Like Math, Music, and Love uh, Make More Sense If There Is a God." Um, I, I want us to talk a little bit about the love um, part of that. On uh, in this chapter, you have you have a nice little table that kind of contrasts uh, love and naturalism and then love and Trinitarian theism. And you say love and naturalism is accidental, biological, and functional, but love and Trinitarian theism is essential, spiritual, and purposeful. And I think this is, just for my money, one of the more um, powerful arguments in favor of theism is the permanency and the, the power of love um, on the Christian worldview when you compare that to um, explanations for love uh, under naturalism. I wonder if you'd unpack uh, a little bit about what you've done there uh, in that table on page 104 in your book.
1: Sure. And, uh, I'll also just define the word naturalism because I just, it just occurred to me someone might be out there wondering what that means. That just means that nature is all there is. Physical nature is, is all there is. There's no spiritual realm. There's no gods or, or God or anything like that. Um, yeah. So this is one of those arguments again. All these arguments, when I'm making arguments about, uh, the meaning of the world, a lot of times this is done more by pointing to like fine tuning. In the universe and things like that. And I do, I think those arguments are very powerful as well. But I find it helpful to look at specific aspects of the world, like math and music and love, and just consider. And I'm using abductive arguments here, which means inferences to the best explanation, not necessarily conclusive arguments. So you're asking, you know, what's the best way to understand our world? Well, love is one of those features because, on a naturalistic worldview, love is reductively explained by evolution. That means that. Uh, genetic mutation, uh, uh, acting, uh, survival of the fittest acting upon random genetic mutation is the only explanation for why the world is the way it is. And that's for why human nature is the way it is. So basically everything, everything boils down to, uh, what will help us pass on our genes so what that means is the way we feel about the person in this world we love the most about our children our spouse our friends it might feel significant it might feel transcendent but it isn't Uh, it's just a sort of glitch in the system it just basically it's there because it helped animals survive and i think it's hard to live off of that it's hard to really face that if you're convinced that love must be more than that, it's at least worth worth considering how a Christian perspective would put it, and that is that love is at the very core of reality, bouncing around for all eternity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we can't even fully understand that or articulate that, but we know that God is love, the Scripture says. And so those are two very different uh, ways of explaining our experience of love and I think most of us will have the intuition that the theistic one, well, gosh, I would say it's both more plausible and more livable. It's hard It's hard to really live off the idea that that feeling of love is ultimately an illusion that is just in me because it had survival value.
2: Yeah, there's, I forget which debate it was, but uh, there's an old... Greg Bonson debate where I, he's debating an atheist and he basically, that's the point he keeps making over and over is that, you know, when you, you kiss your wife, uh, you know, and tell her you love her. And when you, um, you know, you go to a, the funeral of a friend or a loved one, you know, it, it's really just an illusion under your worldview that you act, you know, that, there, that, that love that you claim to have, you know, actually is something um, over and abo- uh, and above just, you know, um, physics, you know, and, and the way that our body, you know, has to, um, you know, just naturally act t- to survive, and you know that just seems totally unsatisfying to me um, as as a way to live. So it's it it's just it's, it's almost like the the atheist has to just deceive himself into thinking that his love uh, actually is something beyond what his worldview tells him that it is, because um, surely he's not going to say to his wife, "Well, you know." Yeah, I love you, but this is what love, you know, actually is. You know, no one would do that. Uh, but yeah, so I want to maybe transition now to um, Christianity as the ground for hope. So we're recording this uh, the week after Easter, and in chapter four of your book, "The Hope of the World," the subtitle of that chapter is "Why Easter Means Happiness Beyond Your Wildest Dreams." Um, if we are not, uh, you know, as Christians, if we're anything, we should be a people of hope. Um, So unpack for us what you're doing there in chapter four of your book um, on Christianity and hope.
1: Okay, essentially there um, I'm honing in from these broader theistic arguments, arguing for God, but not necessarily telling you anything about religion at all yet, Uh, and then honing in specifically to Christianity. And basically I'm making two appeals— one is the old appeal from C.S. Lewis, the Lord liar legend argument. And I just amend that to include the category of legend interacting with Bart Ehrman's scholarship. Cause he says that Jesus didn't claim to be God. So we have to interact with that. So Lord liar, uh, lunatic legend. And I think a very powerful case can be made that none of those options is an easy, obvious option, uh, view. And, uh, I make the case that the best way to understand Jesus is that he really was who he claimed to be, because all the other options are very difficult. Um, And then I secondly uh, make an argument from the resurrection. Both of these arguments surprised me at how strong they are. I didn't expect them to be super strong. But the argument from the resurrection is just that um, something seems to have happened to transform the disciples. We have really good historical evidence of some basic facts that are consistent and coming from independent sources very early on, such as the empty tomb, the burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Almost all historians agree on those basic facts. They're extremely well attested. And then we're all saying, what's the best way to understand that? And yet again, all these rival theories are pretty tough. It's hard to explain. How did the Christian church launch? So I make the case that the best way to understand it is that it really happened. It really did rise from the dead and then i make the argument that if that's true it's also of tsunami like emotional significance it makes absolutely um, it make it, it makes the difference in every way for every human being and it gives hope into any situation if you really think about what it entails so i'm trying to show the emotional implications as well
2: i wonder now if you'll you'll talk to pastors and maybe try to convince the pastor that thinks apologetics isn't worth, you know, his time. You know, give your pitch for why apologetics uh matters and may, maybe specifically um why doing apologetics in a particular way matters in our moment right now. Mm-hmm.
1: I think apologetics is extremely useful because we shouldn't expect people to believe arbitrarily and a lot of times even Christians I mean, that's the thing that I, I found most about apologetics is it's not just for non-Christians. It's to help nourish and console and ha- and feed and encourage and strengthen and stabilize Christians. Because every thoughtful person has questions and struggles at points. And apologetics is as important as thinking is important. <laughs> if we really believe that Christianity is true, we need to be able to think through how it's true, you know. And so um I think... Uh, It's the thing we don't want to do is do apologetics badly because and with triumphalism or with bad arguments or overstating our case that can do damage. But when it's done well, it's enormously helpful to people. I found it so helpful in my life. And yeah, for right now, amidst all the deconstruction we're seeing, I would just encourage people to um, step back and see the bigger picture and where there are dysfunctions in a particular church or institution you may be validly concerned about. A lot of people are going full-blown deconstruction without looking down the road and seeing just how drastic naturalism is as a conclusion to draw. And I'm trying to encourage them to come back and do reconstruction, something I talk a lot about on my YouTube channel, reconstruction from these two axioms. Number one, God exists. Number two, Jesus rose from the dead rebuild from that while you're deconstructing some things let those things be your ballast. I'm not saying it's all you have to believe, but those are the launching points from which that you can then rebuild. Cause I have a heart to help people reconstruct their faith.
2: You just made a point about, Uh, making sure that we do apologetics well and not doing it badly. Is there anything that you see that's maybe a common mistake that apologists are making today or maybe a bad argument that gets repeated far too often that something that you would see uh, that you would like to see apologists uh, stop doing um, that, that maybe is happening uh, pretty frequently?
1: I think the general concern I would have would be about a triumphalism in the approach acting as though Christian. I think Anytime you do apologetics where you don't leave room for the for the complexity that thoughtful people will work through, such that you make it sound like a, the, it's always obvious and it's always easy, that damages people. I think we need to avoid that. And in contrast to that, allow people to struggle at times. Allow people acknowledge the complexity of the case. That's why I like making abductive arguments. I much prefer to say, by reason alone, I think you can make a powerful case. But I, there's usually some way someone can rationally avoid something you're saying. So I think it's often wise to present Christianity as a better alternative. And I think for particular people, just the way this will play out is just don't claim knowledge you don't have, you know. Um, for example, someone doesn't need to be able to disprove all of these really abstruse, non-standard cosmologies. Someone doesn't need to be able to say, I can prove to you with 100% certainty that the universe began. And to make my argument, if people do that, it's like, well, gosh, unless you have a PhD in theoretical physics, um, are you 100% certain? Why not back off the, the triumphalist overstatement and just say, you know, based upon what I've read, it, it looks really compelling that the universe began and make a little more, leave a little more wiggle room. And then, also, don't be afraid to appeal to what are your sincere reasons for believing. Tell your testimony, you know. That's a good argument. Saying, hey, Christ changed my life. That's a great argument. It doesn't need to be intellectual. So I think sincerity is a key thing in apologetics. Really being honest about what we really believe and why we believe it. And not, I think that the key thing is to not overstate our case by claiming knowledge we don't have
2: that's really helpful. Uh, last question I have for you. Um, this is maybe just more of a fun question. Uh, do you have any favorite uh, apologists or uh, apologetic works from, from church history that you would like to recommend for the listeners? Obviously, we want to recommend your book here, but um, do you have any, any go-to sources yourself?
1: My favorite is C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. I know he's not that distant church history. Um, There are other texts like John of Damascus, you know, for engaging with Islam, he's actually a really helpful figure, Um, and then there's other church fathers we could point to. Um, But I love reading C.S. Lewis books, I find his fiction is so helpful, and I also find even works like The Problem of Pain, his autobiography Surprised by Joy, of course, Mere Christianity, a lot of his works really are still just so pithy and eloquent and helpful. So he's one I love to uh, recommend to people.
2: Thank you. Well, um, this has been uh, this book was really a treat. Um, I, I read it a few months ago, like I said, and uh, I, I really, really enjoyed it. So I do want to commend it one final time to the listeners. And Dr. Ortlund, I want to thank you for uh, giving us your time today. And for everybody who's been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. At least we think that's the case. Uh, we'll talk to you guys soon.